filling in for Dave this Monday afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. I was over at the gun show here in Little Rock uh, this past weekend, and as I was at the Conway gun show a few weeks ago, and I wanted to discuss a few things with Dave's audience about these gun shows. First and foremost, I would like to thank all of Dave's listeners because I keep getting stopped at the gun show when I go to buy something and I say hello to somebody and people say, wait, wait, I know that voice. I know that unique, high, relatively high pitched, uh, New York accented, notwithstanding the attempts to disguise it to the contrary uh, voice. That's Rob Steinbuck. Are you Rob Steinbuck? And the answer, of course, is who else could I be? So it's always good to see Dave's fans at the gun shows. These are good, law-abiding, Second Amendment-loving Americans and Arkansans. It's a pleasure to shake your hands at these gun shows. Folks, it's truly remarkable when you go out and you meet real people, how much they love this country, they love this state, And they love the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, of course, is the amendment that protects all of the other amendments. Don't you forget it. And these people there are are good, hardworking Arkansans, hardworking Americans. Doing what's right and recognizing that if we can't enforce our own rights... If we can't protect ourselves, nobody else can do it for us. That's not to say that the police shouldn't be out there doing their jobs as they are. It's to say, if you rely on the state, and by state I mean government, so that's local, state, or federal government. If you rely on the state, to provide you with food, to provide you with shelter, to provide you with security, to provide you with safety. Good luck. Good luck. You know who relied on the state for all of those things? Not by choice, mind you folks, but by compulsion. Those living in totalitarian states, those living under the Nazis, those living under the Soviets, And guess what? Do you think they had it better? Did they have better food, better shelter, better protection? No! No! Because when you rely on someone to provide you what God has given you, not only the ability to provide for, but the demand to provide for. You are charged with providing for yourself food, shelter, and security. Then we are transformed from individuals, from that which God has created in his own image, to sheep. To sheep. And guess what happens to sheep, folks? They get brought to slaughter. 
Don't be a sheep. Be an individual. So God bless America. God bless the First Amendment. God bless the Second Amendment. And God bless every gun show in America for helping to enforce each of those notions. Now, here's a problem, folks. I went to the gun show. And there's a sign out front. This gun show in Little Rock, much like the one that we've discussed on this show before, is held in a public facility. It's at the state fairgrounds. That's run by the state, hence state fairgrounds. That's a government entity. Now they rent out the space. It's a, I don't know, Zach, do you know what they call that building? It's like the, the Science Technology Hall or something like that. Whatever, excuse me, whatever it is, they rent out that building. That's fine. Good. State should bring in some money. And then there's a sign up. It says, no concealed carry. Wait, what? Wait, wait. First of all, the, the irony that you can't carry a gun in a Second Amendment advancing gun show is so palpable as to make me throw up in my mouth a little bit. But put that aside for a moment. The hypocrisy of whoever put up that sign is seeking to sell guns to those who want to enforce the Second Amendment, but says, not in this place. Now, what's up with that? But here's the, here's the real problem, folks. Folks like Charlie Collins, folks like Bob Ballinger, Folks like Trent Garner, folks like Bart Hester. These are all Second Amendment advocating, and I know I've left off se- several folks, so please, but don't let the absence mean that, uh, that th- those people are not included. These are all Second Amendment loving and enforcing legislators. Dan Sullivan's another one. Is John Cooper? No. No, John Cooper's not, by the way. He voted against Stand Your Ground. So John Cooper's not. So these folks, all Second Amendment loving legislators, enacted a series of pro-Second Amendment laws, such as the concealed carry and enhanced carry. That's right, enhanced carry. Now, enhanced carry is somewhat colloquially known as campus carry. It's, it's more than that, folks. But why is it called campus carry, colloquially? I'll tell you. Because folks were prohibited from carrying on campuses, university, state-run university campuses for years. Then Charlie Collins, uh, oh, I don't know, a decade or so ago, proposed a bill that would allow to one with a concealed carry license be it enhanced, whatever the form was at the time, to carry on university campuses. I think the first time that bill was proposed, I testified in favor uh, in the legislature, by the way, back then, in favor of that bill. You might be able to find somewhere uh, in the archives uh, a picture of me sitting next to Charlie Collins. It's a great photo from the Dem Gaz because I have long hair. It's one time in my life I had long hair, and Charlie Collins is looking at me like I'm nuts. I might be, but that wasn't evidence that day of it. It was just, and by the way, 
it, the look, it's, often you'll see newspaper articles that ha- have a picture. They try to capture sort of an expressive uh, um, face of the individual. I don't think uh, Charlie was disputing anything I was saying. I, indeed, I was testifying on his behalf, but he has this curious look on, on his face. So it's, a, it's an entertaining picture if you can find it. In any event, I digress as I often do. So I testified in favor of that. I think that bill didn't pass because the Democrats were in the majority. And notwithstanding their false claims that they were pro-Second Amendment and pro-gun, that they said that, by the way, all the time to get reelected, they were not. And they're not now. And then the second time the bill came up, there was a provision that allowed universities to opt out. So we all thought, well, okay, maybe... Here and there, somebody might opt out, so be it. But you know what happened? Every university, of course, run by uh, uh, leftists across the country, that's the case. I'm making this claim not about our universities in particular, but if you look across universities across the country, administrators, overwhelmingly leftist. So they all opted out. So we had a law that allowed for campus carry, but for the fact that no campus allowed you to carry. Well, that ain't a law. A law that you can't actually use is not a law. You can call it whatever you want. Call it a law. Call it a banana. It ain't no law. So third iteration, Charlie Collins proposes a bill that says people with enhanced carry licenses can carry on campuses. And we don't care what unelected bureaucrats have to say about that, because we, the legislature, I'm not referring to myself, of course, but I'm speaking in Charlie Collins' voice, we, the legislature, are hired to be the operating officers for whom? For the citizens of Arkansas, folks. They work for you, not the other way around. When you meet a legislator, you tell them you're doing a good or a bad job. Go tell them that. And then you can say, this is your annual job evaluation. I'm here to give you your job evaluation. By the way, I get to do it twice. At least once when I tell it to you. And then the second time when I vote. That's what a job evaluation is for an elected official. You don't like them? Vote them out. You're fired. To borrow a term from our president. So, these elected officials work for you. You tell them what you want, and we did. We told them, we believe that Arkansans with gun licenses, perhaps without, by the way, but that's a separate question, should be entitled to carry guns on property owned by whom? The university? No! The government? No! You! You own that property. The government is your trustee of your property. You don't work for the government, notwithstanding that half the year uh, of income goes to pay taxes to state, federal, and local governments. They work for you. And everything that the government owns, I put all that in quotes, you own. That's your property, not the other way around. And so when you're pro, so what does Charlie Collins is, what does Charlie Collins and other legislators say at the time they're passing enhanced carry? The citizens told us what to do with their property. The citizens told us that they want to be allowed and 
uh, themselves and others similarly situated to be able to carry their firearms on their own property, i.e. state property. That is state property. That's not a difficult concept to grasp. Now, is it, folks? We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to tie this in to how your rights, your rights are being stolen from you by private companies renting your property. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday afternoon. Don't worry, folks. I'll get my words in the correct order one day. One day. I was telling you how your rights are being stolen by private individuals and mid-level bureaucrats who don't know any better. Or maybe they do, and they're too lazy or too incompetent to do something otherwise. So what am I talking about? So we just had a detailed discussion how conservatives in the legislature amended the carry laws such that you can carry, with an enhanced carry license, a concealed weapon in various places, including campuses, by the way, including the Capitol. In other words, these legislators put their money where their mouth is and said, you should be able to carry, including where I work. Good for them. God bless them. Amen. Amen. So what happened next? So now I go to gun shows because I like to meet hardworking Arkansans who believe in the Second Amendment. And what do they do? There's a sign up that says, no concealed carry. Wait, that's government property. We've just in, uh, passed a few years back now, frankly, enhanced carry that says, for the most part, you can carry a gun on government property. With enhanced carry license. Again, I'm not, I put aside for the moment the discussion of what rights you may or may not have beyond the enhanced carry statutory regime. That's a broader question. We can have it, but not at this moment. If you have enhanced carry, you can carry in the Capitol. You can carry on the university campuses. You can carry it in virtually every state building. Folks, check your list. By the way, there are certain exceptions like police departments and I think prisons, something like that. But I'm not here to give you an exhaustive list. I believe, but I'm not sure you can carry in polling places. All sorts of places. You as an Arkansan with an enhanced carry license are entitled to carry your firearm, including the Capitol. And some mid-level bureaucrat rents out your property. How do I know it's your property? Because it's government property. You pay for it, folks. You, what do you think? It just sprung up like a mushroom? That's your money. And some government bureaucrat who checks in at 10, checks out at 4, is, uses uh, government money, by the way, to likely fund the municipal league. That is the lobbying arm of mid-level government bureaucrats who are paid with taxpayer dollars. Oh, folks, we're going to change that, by the way. Some mid-level bureaucrat rents out these places, these government facilities, meaning your property... Your property, 
to a private company. Okay, good. And the private company puts up a sign that says no guns allowed. Say what? Say what? Uh, I'm sorry. Well, you know, you see, says the mid-level bureaucrat. You see, uh, well, they're renting it. You know, it's their property at that time. They can do whatever. No, wait, what? No, they can't. How'd you like this? How about if the, that private company put up a sign and said no Jews allowed? Would you let that happen? Would you let that them have a sign that said no Asians or blacks allowed? Would you let that happen? No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Why? Because it's your property. Not their problem. Can they do that on their private home? Can they put up a sign on their private home that says no Jews allowed? Folks, they can. Perfectly legal. Private property? Sure they can. Sure they can. Is it rude? Is it offensive? Is it anti-Semitic and discriminatory? Sure. And 100% legal. But not on government property, folks. No, sir. No, ma'am. But somehow... These mid-level bureaucrats have outsourced your rights, your ownership rights in government property and given that property over to some private company that decided to void, to vitiate, to eliminate, to erase the rights that you have been guaranteed in addition to the Constitution. Put that aside for the purposes of discussion. By specific statute, Enacted by our outstanding conservative legislators. Gone. Erased. Wiped out. Because some mid-level bureaucrat decided, well, you see, we're going to run it out to private owners because we'll get a $1.98 in revenue. That doesn't pay for my five or six-figure salary, mind you, but who cares? You know, this way I can march around. Look, I'm real effective. I did my job today. Uh, Let me go out to lunch. And your rights are gone. And your rights are gone. You can't carry your firearm on state property because a private actor rented that property? Hey, can, oh, well, they can do whatever they want. Really? They can do whatever they want? Can they rent it out and, and, and make a prostitution house on that land for three weeks? Is that legal? Can they sell uh, um, heroin on that land? Is that legal? Oh, you mean those laws don't stop getting enforced because it's rented out to a private individual? Oh, but the, the, the concealed carry laws, those are gone. Those are erased. Concealed carry, enhanced carry says you're entitled to carry on state property with some minimal exceptions that don't apply here. So why are these properties now exempted out? Why is state property exempted out? By the way, I suspect it's not. I suspect those signs are in conflict with the law. But I'm not asking you to challenge that because we've got a problem here. And the problem is some mid-level bureaucrat is too busy doing nothing to do his or her job. Here's how the contract should read, folks. You want to rent our property? Here's the price. Here are the terms, including... You must abide by the enhanced carry law that is the law of the land. You want to keep people from gun- with guns off your property? Knock yourself out. Operative term, your property. Your property. But you know what state fairgrounds are? They are my property. And every listener of Dave and frankly anybody else that lives in this state 
that's who owns that property. So here's a little thought as we go to break. Hey, mid-level bureaucrats, keep your hands off my darn property. It's mine. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We've got a number of guests coming up. But before that, I want to talk with you about an article written by Brett Stevens in the New York Times. Now, Brett Stevens is a commentator. By the way, he's a, he's a never-Trumper. I'm not a big fan. Now, in and of itself, if he's a never-Trumper, doesn't mean he can't say something that I like. But the problem I have with never-Trumpers... Now, remember what we mean when we talk about never-Trumpers. Those are Republicans who, nonetheless, are vehemently against Trump. I don't expect the liberals to be pro-Trump. So they say, well, we don't agree with Trump. Well, of course you don't. Well, you don't agree with Trump or Bush or Romney. Notice how the latter two uh, uh, are uh, of various different stripes of conservatism. Um, Romney being, you know, this robot Romney. Hello, my name is Mitt Romney. I will do what I am told. Okay, anyway, enough with the Mitt Romney robot for a moment. So, but when Republicans are never Trump, notwithstanding that he has clearly not only pursued but accomplished a number of conservative goals, then it seems like you're driven uh, by something more than conservative values. Oh, yes, we are. You say, you say, he's, he's a danger. Who's a danger because because he's rude and 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 he violates norms. Mm, norms are what most people do most of the time until they don't. So yeah, I agree. It violates norms. I think we can use a little shaking up. Maybe not always the things that he does, but because everybody marches along like again a robot doing exactly what you expect. Oh, yes, I'm the Republican and I'm the Democrat. We're going to move the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Oh, I got elected. Now we can't do it. Yeah, that's a norm. That's what the norm was. And he said, um, wait a second. I just promised the same thing that all these other guys did, but I don't intend to change my mind on that. Wait, what? Wait, what? The whole leftist State Department Took a tizzy. Whoa! You know, we're the experts. Are you elected? Nope. By the way, State Department is the federal equivalent of these mid-level bureaucrats who won't let you carry your firearms on state property in which it's legal otherwise to carry firearms because they've rented out your property to some private organization that decides, notwithstanding that they want to sell guns, you can't carry yours. Huh? Right. Don't worry, folks. If it sounds confusing, it's because it's absurd. Coming back, Brett Stevens brings up, writes this article about Jewish intelligence. Say what? Yeah, he writes an article and he says that if you look at um, studies, Jews come out intelligent on IQ tests, whatever, whatever the, however you're measured. I don't know about however, maybe if you have a measurement of intelligence by how far you can throw a baseball, uh, I suspect that wouldn't be a very good measure of it. But on ordinary measures of intelligence, Jews come out pretty well. And by the way, there are different measures of intelligence. What do we mean by intelligence? There's, there's sort of mathematical intelligence, which is different than sort of other types of intelligence. So depending on the tests, 
Jews perform differently, but nonetheless, as a general matter, it's fair to say that Jews perform well on intelligence tests. And then he goes into a breakdown between uh, Jews from Europe. There's a term, you're not going to know it, and you don't need to know it, folks. It's called Ashkenazi. That means Jews of European descent versus what, right? Versus Middle Eastern descent, right? Because if you look at the Bible, Jews came from the Middle East, and then the diaspora, they were spread out, right? Because Israel had historically been attacked, and the Jews were spread out as a consequence of that. And so many Jews went to Europe, of course. There were plenty of Jews that remained in the Middle East. And they even look somewhat different, right? Look at an average European person. Look at an average Middle Easterner, right? There's different physical characteristics. And so these are kind of very broad ways of describing uh, different groupings of Jews. There are, theoretically, there. in fact, not theoretically, I know for a fact, there are some Asian Jews, Chinese Jews, uh, um, Japanese Jews that that are uh, of Chinese or Japanese descent. They are largely um, uh, converts, not entirely, but largely converts. But in any event, let's say you ran into uh, a, a person of Chinese descent who's Jewish, that person would look Chinese. So these are different differences of appearances based on populations. So in any event, Brett Stevens goes on to talk about how Jews generally perform well on intelligence. Oh my gosh, the Twitter sphere was a mess in shock. How dare you? How dare you say that certain groups can perform differently on intelligence or anything else? Go back, by the way, look at the bell curve. That was a, a book written, oh my, I want to say 25 years ago by, by the way, two folks who aren't necessarily conservative or liberal. Uh, one of them passed away. One of them was shunned for years and is finally making his way back into sort of uh, ac- academic circles, or at least some conservative academic circles. And, and they said, let's look at the breakdown of IQ agro- across various groups. And he said, well, there's some differences. Oh, my goodness. That's eugenics. That's racism. Wait, what? By the way, I don't know what the different breakdown is. I don't care what the different breakdown is because I deal with people as individuals. But that doesn't mean social science doesn't exist. Do you think it's accurate, folks, to say that uh, people of Norway on average have lighter skin than people from Spain? Well, they do. That's a fact. That's differences in populations. Is that somehow racist eugenics to say that comment? Do you think it's inaccurate to say that that the overwhelming number of long distance runners come from, and I always mix it up, it's either West Africa or East Africa. I say that because the alternative ha- dominates in short distance running. And, and they've demonstrated that there is a, um, a genetic component to it. Yeah, because generations upon generations of people that, that had to live in an environment where they had to run long distances are going to populate, be more successful if they have that ability. And those without that ability, less so. And vice versa, in areas where you need to run quickly but short distances, guess what? Those people thrive. 
Why do people, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, in Norway have lighter skin? Because there's less sun than, than in Spain. So people in Spain, when they, those that survive, those that flourish, have darker skin because those with a light skin didn't do well in all the sun. Skin cancer, all sorts of problems. And so as a percentage of the population, they're going to wither. Dark hair. Dark hair in the South, not in the North. Is it fair to say that Germans are taller than Koreans? It's true. Are you allowed to say it? Not in today's PC culture. If you take any high school class and divide them in half, do you think they will be identically matched in, I don't know, you pick it, their ability to play softball, their ability to do math, anything like that? Seems unlikely, doesn't it? Why? Because whenever you group people together, you're going to have certain attributes and not have certain other attributes in one group, and that's not going to identically mirror the next group down the line. So be it. So be it. I am, for example, of average height. I think I'm right about the average. I can't remember if I'm slightly above the average, slightly below the average, because I can't remember what the average is. But I'm average height. No one accuses me of being tall. People don't generally call me short, but, you know, if I'm, a, I'm standing next to a tall guy, big guy, I'm pretty short. So be it. Well, guess what? Uh, I am what I referenced a moment ago, European Jewish descent. Yeah. On average, European Jews are not tall. They're not like Vikings. If you compare European Jews to those of Viking descent, the Vikings are way taller. Way taller. Or Samoans. Have you seen a Samoan? I had a guy once came with a moving company to move my furniture. This guy would pick up a whole wall unit in a bear hug and move it. It's a Samoan guy. He was not so unusual amongst the Samoan community. I don't know if I've ever met a European Jew that big. There's probably one, maybe even two. So what am I saying? I'm saying that different populations have different attributes. Right? Is that hard to believe? Jews, for the most part, have dark eyes and dark hair. Why? Because even those of European descent trace back to the Middle East. Now, mind you, Jesus was a Jew and he had blue eyes. Because blue eyes can can come up as an anomaly, uh, notwithstanding uh, the, the previous generations. But for the most part, if you meet someone who's Jewish with with blue eyes, the odds are in favor of the fact they have some non-Jewish blood. I've got non-Jewish blood. My great-grandmother was a Lutheran, German Lutheran. And by German, I mean born, lived, raised, and died in Germany with blue eyes. Yeah, well, guess what? That's in the gene pool now. But can we still talk about what the gene pool of Jews look like, what the gene pool of uh, Norwegians look like, what the gene pool of uh, Haitians look like, what the gene pool of Koreans look like? Sure we can. But not in leftist society you can't. No, sir. No, sir. We're all identical. We look the same, sound the same, talk the same, everything's the same. Wait, what? Wait, what? 
By the way, it's so much the same. There's no male. There's no female. There's no tall. There's no short. There's no smart. There's no not smart. You know what there is? There is there's one distinction in society. Privileged or unprivileged. Yeah. Yeah, because when I grew up, I'm apparently privileged, by the way, folks, because when I grew up and my mom would open up the oven in the kitchen before we went to school and turn on the broiler because the house was so cold and the boiler couldn't even heat the house. Now, I'm not crying poverty. We actually had a roof over our heads. We had a roof. It leaked on occasion, but not a lot. So I was better off than many and worse off than some. But don't tell me I was privileged. Both my parents worked my whole life to put me and every and both of my siblings uh, through college. Don't tell me I was privileged. Yet Brett Stevens is lambasted for having the audacity to say, oh, well, I think I think I noticed something about uh, the performance of Jews in one aspect. By the way, maybe he's wrong. Maybe he's wrong. I don't care. You know, you can say that Norwegians are short. All right, well, you'd be wrong, but you wouldn't be discriminatory. You'd be stating a fact, that something you believe to be a fact that is provable or disprovable. So why is that permissible? But we're never allowed to talk about how IQ, intelligence, what, and I, I, I don't use these terms interchangeably because IQ is not the same as intelligence. It's a measure a proxy, imperfect, by the way, of intelligence, how those things may be related somehow to populations. i got to tell you, folks, I've seen smart, ki- smart parents, like really smart folks that I've met, and their kids are generally pretty smart. Hmm. Is that all environment? Or maybe there's something genetic about it? Does that mean someone who has parents who are not intelligent can't be smart? No, that's the point. That's why you don't go, hey, give me your parents' SAT scores. No, because we still evaluate each individual. There is huge variance is the term used in statistics. In other words, variation. Hey, I could be six foot eight. I would be Jewish still, but I'd be outside the norm, outside the average for the Jewish population. I have a good friend of mine up in New York. This guy is taller than a tower. He's Jewish. Yeah. He's outside the norm. All right. But if I were picking for a basketball or he plays, um, what is it, volleyball. This guy stands over the net. He just smashes it down. If I were picking, would I say, hey, uh, let me look on this chart whether you're Jewish or how tall are you actually? Same thing with intelligence, folks. Do I look, hey, let me look. You're part of which group, which might not be the group that overall on average has the highest intelligence, but you're a genius? Yeah, I think I'll still hire you. Take a, so it's one thing to deal with individuals. It's another thing to make uh, um, sort of what's, anthropological evaluations. Folks, I've rambled on. How uncharacteristic of me. We're going to take a break now, and we'll come back. This is Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday afternoon. Folks, I've been talking about this Brett Stevens uh, column that he wrote reflecting on uh, Jewish intelligence. That's what the article was about. Are Jews intelligent? I don't know. You decide. I'm not here to endorse that, to refute that. But it's a claim 
about facts. In other words, you could say, well, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro is the tallest peak in the world. It's not the tallest peak in the world. I don't know where it is the tallest peak. It's the tallest peak in something. But it's not in the world. So you can make that statement. It would be incorrect. But you can make it, and then it can be tested. So Brett Stevens made some comment, and I don't recall exactly what it was, but some comment about, generally, on average, Jewish intelligence. Okay. Do you think it's false? Do you think that Jews are not, on average, intelligent? Okay. Well, figure out a way to measure it. You know, we measure IQ. Uh, we I measure total number of graduates of college or good college or graduate degrees or success in business. Figure out a measure of intelligence. And then look where Jews fall on that. And then you can decide whether Brett Stevens is right or wrong. He could be wrong. I'm not here to state a position one way or another because I haven't particularly analyzed it. I haven't particularly analyzed it. But what I can tell you is it's a perfectly plausible statement to make. And it's a statement in which can be tested. Walking into the studio, we're going to start at the next hour, by the way, is Josh Silverstein. Is it Silverstein or Silverstein? Both are correct, exactly. Particularly, the whichever one I'm using is the correct one at the moment. So Josh Silverstein, my colleague from the University of Arkansas Bowen School of Law, walked in. He's of Jewish descent, needless to say. I say needless to say because, oh my gosh, can we actually observe that Silverstein is a Jewish-sounding name? Yeah. We're like, oh, wait, wait, what? Oh, no. Close your eyes. No, that's a name of, uh, of Jewish descent. It's a, it's a German-based name, and then within the German-based names, there are certain German-based names that are more prone to being Jewish than others. In fact, Silverstein is somewhat more prone to being Jewish than Steinbuck is. Steinbuck, I, I, I know of uh, some Steinbucks who are not Jewish, and of course, many who are. In any event, he's an intelligent guy. There's one piece of data. Now, you can't make a calculation, of course, on whether or not uh, Jews on average are intelligent based on Silverstein. But come up with whatever measure you want to talk about different populations and whatever characteristics on average they have. But you're not allowed to say that, folks. You are on 101.1 The Answer. Because we tell you the truth. You, wanna, you don't want the truth? Go listen to somebody else. By the way, I want to mention some good news that I heard. Dave Ellswick told me I can mention it, Zach. Zach's nodding his head. Zach, can I not tell it? Zach, talk in my ear. Tell me. Well, all right. Well, Dave Ellswick told me I can, I can break the news. So I'm going to break the news. Folks, in the mornings, you're going to listen to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, coming the new year, and then roll right into Dave Ellswick. Rush Limbaugh is coming to 101.1 The Answer. So it's going to be Rush Limbaugh, Dave Ellswick, and that little squeaky voice on occasion from Rob Steinbuck. So you'll get the truth here. By the way, I don't work for the radio station. I fill in for Dave. I'm happy to do it. There are other stations out there that do a good job. I'm not trying to pick favorites. I love this station. I think they do a great job. But it's not the only station out there. I'm not, this is not a good, I'm just telling you, 
You want to listen to Rush? You're going to hear it here. That's some big news, isn't it? Anyway, we've only got a couple of minutes left. I want to finish up this thought, and we're going to come back and talk with Josh Silverstein, one of those Jewish heritage intelligent people that Brett Stevens says falls into the group of uh, the population, group population, of Jews that on average are intelligent. And somehow, that's eugenics, it's racism. Because you see, all those other factors that I mentioned, folks, those we can perhaps talk about, can't talk about intelligence. It's all about privilege. No, it ain't. No, it ain't. Doesn't mean you don't evaluate each individual based on their merits because you don't hire by aggregates, right? You you don't see, um, what is it, would it be? I guess the uh, uh, um, professional basketball uh, teams say, oh, just fill out this form. Tell us uh, where you were born because we'll be able to determine on average your height. No, no, they don't base it that way because they want to know your actual height. The same way if you're hiring, say, a law professor, you want to know his actual intelligence. I've certainly met folks who are of Jewish heritage who are, let's put it this way, I wouldn't hire to be a professor. That's all I'll say. But Brett Stevens is lambasted for making observations. 25 years ago, we had this with the bell curve. The same thing continues to happen. You're not allowed to make these kinds of rational observations about populations. And that is not an indictment of any population at all. And it's certainly not an indictment of any individual. Well, frankly, it's an indictment of one type of individual. Those on the left that won't let you tell the truth. They won't let you talk. We'll be back. Show. I am Robert Stomach filling for Dave. Zach is telling me that they've made this audio up with my name. Oh, no, not with my Oh, that's not. Oh, I got that wrong. I'm sorry, Zach. I, I misunderstood what you were saying. Zach trying to make me feel better than I will. In the studio today, right now, Josh Silverstein, law professor, uh, and um, You practiced law in Chicago. Was it entirely in Chicago? Yes. Where you practiced, yeah. And and so you were a litigator. You you were a trial lawyer for many years. Isn't that right? Correct. And what was your specialty at the time? It was mostly business litigation, mostly business work. I did antitrust, products liability, bankruptcy, accounting malpractice. I focused a lot on at my first firm. And then a lot of breach of contract and fraud lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, of course, plenty of very, very good law professors that haven't particularly practiced law. That's right. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. But and everybody brings something to the table. And I believe that those who practice law can bring something very useful to teaching law that in any in any event 
doesn't mean the, those others without that background are not skilled because maybe they can bring something different that you don't have. But there's something special about someone who's actually practiced law because I believe that they're able to bring a pragmatic uh, uh, approach to teaching the law and understanding the law and weave together real-life examples to instruct students in advance of their starting to practice. Say a few words about that, if you agree or not. I completely agree with everything you've said, and I often base problems and other types of questions in class on cases that I did in private practice. Anytime we're talking about an area of law that I did a case on, I try to bring what happened in that case into the classroom to show the students how the issues that we're discussing matter when you're actually practicing law in the trenches. So one of the things that we're going to talk about today is this lawsuit by one of our colleagues at the law school and a couple of other University of Arkansas law professors, and it's made on behalf of all of them, against the university system. We had Joey Price on the other day, by the way. He talked a little about the case. But I want to go into some more depth. Mm -hmm. And I thought, in addition to Joey, let's get a law professor who is both adept in practice and adept in sort of, shall we say, broader concepts being a law professor to talk about this uh, from slightly uh, higher level of abstraction. So for Dave's audience, because of course nobody has my previous shows memorized, remind the audience what the lawsuit is about and then talk about some of the legal issues involved. Sure. So generally university professors, after they teach for a certain amount of time, are awarded tenure. And tenure is the right to be terminated only for cause. You're not what we normally call an at-will employee where either side can end the relationship whenever they want to. Now, the purpose of tenure isn't to protect people generically. It's not to make it so that people can be lazy or slough off on their work. The purpose of tenure is so that professors can teach and research on whatever they want And they can focus on the truth, something you were talking about throughout the show before I came on. They can take their research or their classroom practice in whatever direction they believe the truth leads. And without tenure, there is a history of outside forces and forces within the university pressuring professors to conform to orthodoxy. And that really problematically inhibits the search for truth. And tenure has been a part of American higher education for about a century, and it partly explains why American higher education is generally the most respected in the world. Wherever we rank when it comes to primary and secondary schools, our universities are generally regarded as amongst the very best, if not the best, in the world. Now, about two and a half years ago, the university decided, the University of Arkansas decided to weaken tenure protections to make it easier to fire university professors within the Arkansas system. And the reason that's a problem is that, as I just said, 
tenure is extremely important to preserving the search for truth throughout higher education. Now, you can have a reasonable policy debate over whether tenure should remain a part of university systems. I strongly support it. I think the evidence strongly supports it. But you can debate whether we should have tenure in the long run as a policy matter. What you can't do is take away someone's tenure or weaken someone's tenure who already has it. That's where we get into a legal dispute, not a policy dispute about what is best, but a legal dispute about what rights we have. Professors have a contract with the university. It's an employment contract, and that employment contract provides for tenure, and it sets the scope and force of tenure. For the university to unilaterally change that without the consent of the professors, that violates the contract rights of the professors. And those contract rights are protected both by basic contract law and by the state and federal constitutions because we are government employees. And so what the lawsuit is about is trying to force the university to comply with its legal obligations. If the university wants to change the scope of tenure protections for new professors, I think it's a bad idea, but it's within their legal authority. What they can't do, or at least what the lawsuit alleges they can't do, and I think the lawsuit is correct, is weaken the tenure protections of professors who already have tenure contracts. It's a basic idea. A contract is an agreement between two parties, and it can only be modified if both parties agree. Well, the concept of it being a contract seems pretty straightforward to me, but Listen, the state, particularly in Arkansas, given the sovereign immunity rules that need to be changed, but nonetheless are in place these days, can pretty much trample over people's contract rights, it seems. So why not just trample over them? What's Maybe these contracts are too good to be true. I had one person say to me, well, you know, nobody else has lifetime Contracts, by the way, no one ever said this was a lifetime contract, so I I, I don't know how that got into the vernacular. And conservatives seem to mistake the notion of tenure with the notion of protecting a bunch of lazy leftists on campuses. Oh, don't get me wrong. I suspect there are a bunch of lazy leftists on campuses across this country. But does tenure protect lazy leftists or does it protect somebody else that we should be more concerned about? particularly given the the level of leftist indoctrination at university madrasas across this country. So what does tenure actually do, and how is that good for Arkansans, no less conservative Arkansans? So let me address the sovereign immunity point first. If the professors were seeking money damages, if the lawsuit was about getting paid by the university— then sovereign immunity would be a more significant problem. But what the professors are seeking here is what is called injunctive relief. It's an order that the university behave or not behave in a particular way. And generally, especially in the constitutional context, the courts have made clear 
that when you're seeking injunctive relief, sovereign immunity doesn't apply. So sovereign immunity shouldn't be an issue in this case. Now, in terms of the length of tenure, what tenure is, tenure is definitely not lifetime employment. The standard is you can be fired for cause, which generally includes incompetency or failure to do your job. And so it's definitely not an absolute guarantee of lifetime employment. By the way, there are people who have a pretty much a guarantee of lifetime employment. They're called federal judges. We do not have the same protection that they do. Now, in terms of who tenure actually protects, it protects all professors. But you can think of tenure as a type of a right. And rights generally are used by minorities to resist pressure from majorities. They're used in other contexts as well, but they are critical to protecting those in the minority. We don't just allow the majority rules of democracy to override fundamental rights, whether that's in the constitutional context or in other legal contexts. And so what tenure does more than anything else is it protects people who are dissenters, people who are outside the mainstream, people who are pressing against popular opinion, whether it be within the university or outside of it. So when you think about tenure as protecting minorities, one of the most significant minorities in higher education is conservative professors. In many departments of the university system, liberals outnumber conservatives 5, 10, even 20 to 1. And so one of the things that tenure does is it enables those conservatives to speak out and present their views generally without fear of losing their job. And interestingly, professors often have disputes with administrators. And what recent research has shown is that college administrators, the people who run universities, are even more liberal than professors. And so what tenure does is it protects both conservative and moderate professors from liberal administrators who sometimes, unfortunately, seek to impose a particular orthodoxy throughout the university system. Josh, this is really intriguing. Let us take a quick break, uh, and we'll come back and continue to talk about this interesting topic. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave Ellswick. We have in the studio Josh Silverstein, law professor at the Bowen School of Law here in Little Rock. Josh, you've been talking with Dave's audience about this lawsuit by a select number of professors across the University of Arkansas system on behalf of all of them uh, regarding changes to the tenure system in which you describe the reduction in freedom of professors to express those views, their views, and you said this will negatively impact conservatives more than liberals, albeit it may impact some liberals as well, because conservatives are in the minority in academia. That's not a fact in dispute. As long as you recognize that the sky is up and the earth is down, uh, you recognize that overwhelmingly conservatives are in the minority in academia. Why do you think the university changed the rules to weaken the ability of professors to say and write and publish on those topics that they think are important in a way that they believe speaks the truth. 
So there have been a number of trends in higher education that I think this falls under. As a general matter, what we've seen in higher education is an expansion in the number of administrators and an expansion in the power of administrators relative to faculty. Historically, faculty played a very significant role in governing the university, in focusing it on the academic mission of the institution. And over the last 50 or 60 years, universities have increasingly moved in other directions and focused on a broader array of priorities than the core academic mission. And as part of that, there's been an increase in university power. Part of it has come through eliminating full-time faculty positions and switching to adjuncts who are temporary part-time faculty with no real job protection. And part of it is by directly weakening the rules of tenure. What this does is it gives the university administrators more control to run the institution. And that's where I think some people argue that might be a good thing. They might improve efficiency. And I think that might be true in some cases. As you've noted, there are some lazy people in higher education, just like there are in every field of human endeavor. The problem is that when you think about the importance of the search for truth, how important the truth is in the classroom and in the research that professors do, that has to be the focus of the structure of the university system. Who we hire, who runs the school, the rules that govern how the institution functions. And so I think some of these changes which are designed or aimed at perhaps more efficiency and more power for administrators, that's not worth sacrificing academic freedom and limiting the search for truth. That's a rather interesting point. In other words, efficiency is good when you're building cars. Efficiency may not be the goal at all when you're seeking to present new ideas and stimulate the mind. Right. Indoctrination is easy, right? right. Uh, a, a Maoist indoctrination center doesn't require academics with free thinking, new ideas, some of which inev- inevitably won't work out. That's right. A Maoist indoctrination center just tells you what you are supposed to know, what doctrine you're supposed to favor, what doctrine you're supposed to follow. And parents are reasonably and rightfully concerned when they send their students, excuse me, their children who are students off to college, out of the home, often for the first time in their lives, to be guided by overwhelmingly leftist university administrators. And now those administrators are have more control over the content of the classroom. And so my question to you, Josh, is if administrators, who I think are even, tell me about this, I think statistics show they're even more leftist than faculty. Talk about that, please. Um, uh, that they now will have even greater control over the classroom. Does that lead to more open, honest dialogue in which all viewpoints will come out or more simply leftist ideology? The only There hasn't been a lot of research on this topic, 
But the research that is available supports the conclusion that administrators are even more liberal than faculty are. And part of the problem with that is that administrators are often not as focused or trained to think about the best way to search for the truth and allow different perspectives to present themselves. If you're a conscientious faculty member, if you're a conscientious teacher, a conscientious researcher, even if you have a particular perspective, as we all do, you, if you're careful, can do a very good job of making sure that multiple viewpoints are presented in the classroom. And you can make sure that in your research that you're considering alternative viewpoints in trying to advance the production of knowledge. Administrators don't always think in those terms, even when they are former professors. They often think, what will lead to the least controversy? What will help with fundraising? What will lead to the least rocking of the boat? And part of the point of academia, of higher education, is to rock the boat. It's to present controversial ideas that, as you point out, often will fail, but when they break through and change how people think, that's how revolutions happen. Revolutions in science, revolutions in psychology, revolutions even in the humanities and in philosophy. It's by people pushing against the status quo with new ideas. That's how human knowledge progresses. And so what's the solution, Josh? What's the solution here and what's the solution more broadly? We've got less than a minute. I think that the rules that the university had in place before, while not perfect, were very good. And there were some members of the faculty, including you and I, who presented some alternative rule systems that would have, I believe, done a much better job at balancing the university's legitimate need to run the institution as effectively as possible without trampling on the ability of faculty to take the search for truth wherever it leads them. Well, we can hope that that will turn out to be the result here, uh, uh, given this lawsuit and the balance uh, to the force, shall we say, uh, should be restored, notwithstanding that awful. You love uh, that movie. Don't oh, lie. That, you love that it. last movie was you awful. love it. Zach. Oh, my God. The entire new trilogy should not have been made. It was a massive Stop waste it. of resources. Oh, the, the first one of the new trilogy, which is a remake of A New Hope, that was a good movie, notwithstanding your claims to the contrary. We're going to take a break. We'll see what happens next. This is a Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday afternoon in the studio is Josh Overstein, law professor at the Bowen School of Law here at the University of uh, Arkansas at Little Rock. W what's our sort of logo now it's uh ua little rock ua little rock i'm not i'm being serious i i i I'm, i haven't kept up and i should have here at ua little rock uh and uh, josh josh has been here longer than i have in fact by by a year uh but nonetheless i've been here long enough that uh you gotta cut us both open to count the number of rings josh uh you are a democrat and i point that out not as an insult uh, although most of Dave's listeners might take it as such. Uh, but I pointed out, there is a, a, a fellow, you've, you've met him, right, Dan Sullivan? Have you met Dan? When we were working on the, Dan, as you know, was a, a co-sponsor of the free speech on campus bill. And you worked uh, very heavily uh, with us 
on that bill. I pointed out to say, first and foremost, that that bill and many of the, the issues that we pursue are not left or right. They're right in the other sense of the word. They're correct. Uh, and uh, so we pursue bills that are good for Arkansans and, of course, Americans more broadly, but those bills in state legislatures only affect Arkansans, uh, albeit I'm sure others will copy. One of the bills, another one of the bills that you worked on that we were only able to put together late in the session last time, so it didn't move forward, but we'll do it again, is the free speech for government employees bill. That's not left or right. That says if you put on on your, I always use the same silly example, but if you put on your footsie pajamas at night and you get on the Facebook the Insta post, Zach's nodding his head. Yeah, Zach, I'm too old for the right terms. And uh, uh, you uh, write something uh, that doesn't violate the law, that doesn't constitute legal discrimination, uh, but you write these things, uh, you can't be fired by your employer. And the problem is that right now you can be. People say, wait, no, the First Amendment allows that. Uh, and it doesn't uh, because of the test based on this case called Pickering. As you know, Pickering simply says, has two questions. First question, is it a matter of public interest? If it's not, they can fire you no matter what. No matter what. Wait, you said something that's not a matter of newsworthiness on your Facebook and they can fire you? You can say you don't like your neighbor. That's not, an int- that's not a matter of public interest and they can fire you for that? Under the First Amendment, they can. That's right. First Amendment doesn't protect that. First Amendment is very limited. So then you say, okay, well, it's a matter of public interest. It deals with school choice. Um, It deals with gay marriage. It deals with transgender rights and classifications. Okay, well, I can say anything I want about those. No! Then the next inquiry is whether or not they believe it's disruptive. Well, don't they always win on that? No, not always. Do they almost always win on that? Yeah, almost always. And so how do you enhance that? Just because the First Amendment doesn't protect it doesn't mean you can't write a law that protects it. Very simple. So that's neither a liberal or conservative value. This is all by way of background. Because I'm now going to take a left-hand turn. Dan Sullivan, who I just mentioned to you, is running in a primary. You know, a lot of the races in Arkansas are really primary races. It's the Republican primary that determines the winner because the area is clearly going to vote for the Republican. Sometimes the same is the case for the Democratic primary, but given how conservative the state is, that's less likely the case. So Dan Sullivan's running in a primary against John Cooper. John Cooper is the current senator from that area. Dan was in a primary challenge with John uh, um, four years ago and lost by 67 votes, I believe. Statistically insignificant, but nonetheless, let's be clear, enough to make the win. Enough to make the win. That's why we don't use polls, by the way, folks, to determine who's the winner. Hillary would have been the winner based on the polls. She wasn't the winner based on the vote. Dan didn't win that first one as tight as a razor's edge that election was. 
But Dan has developed himself a pretty good record. And by good, I mean big, not good as in good versus bad. Because it's pretty bad. And so I want you to tell me, as a Democrat, as a Democrat, I'm going to give you some issues. What's the Democratic position? What's the conservative or Republican position? Are you, a fam- are you familiar with this notion of stand your ground laws? Yes. Right? And so for the audience's sake, just very briefly, it uh, under current Arkansas state law, this is now the minority across the country, but nonetheless, under current Arkansas law, if, if you or anybody's confronted with deadly force, some people say deadly physical force. What other kind is there? Uh, so deadly force, you can respond only after determining that you can't run away. Now, if you can't run away, you're allowed to respond with equal uh, deadly force or even more, I think. Uh, because once it's deadly, there's no measuring. I think that can be any level within that spectrum, in that classification. So Dan Sullivan was for Stand Your Ground, and John Cooper gave the vote that killed it in committee in the Senate this past term. Which is the conservative position? Which is the liberal position? I think this is one of the issues where there's a little more crossover because... I think on average, conservatives are more likely to support stand your ground than liberals are. But I think a lot of the police agencies were real concerned with stand your ground, the way it was written, and many of them generally side more with conservatives on these issues. Oh, but but I, uh, you're right in describing that there were a number of police agencies that came out against this bill. But this is the problem. That's not a conservative value. They, you, the, the line officers didn't come out against it. The administrators did. And the administrators in police agencies are very much like the administrators in academia across this country. They take a liberal bent because it allows them to consolidate power. If people have the right to defend themselves, that removes some authority and power from law enforcement because they have no longer a monopoly or near monopoly over that use of force. That decrease in power is of significant concern to the administrators in a way that is not a concern to the line officers. So if you ask line officers, they're overwhelmingly in favor of stand your ground. But if you talk to the more leftist administrators, they're against it. Interesting. So with that said, any, any further comment? I mean, you can just say, I don't, have, I don't know anymore, but I'm, I'm not trying to shut you off. I just wanted right. to add that thought. Yeah, I, I don't think I have anything else to add beyond that, but that's yeah. an interesting point. Yeah. Now, what about Obamacare? Now, Obamacare is a federal program, of course, but it requires state implementation. And one of the ways that states implement it is by uh, creating what's known as Medicare expansion. They allow other people than those who generally or at least previously qualified for, excuse me, Medicaid expansion, uh, those who previously qualified for Medicaid to uh, sign up, essentially. For Medicaid. And that is an augment to the federal Obamacare. It is one of several means by which states can implement Obamacare. Right. Or they can, in in some ways, essentially opt out. Right. This was the area uh, in the Supreme Court case 
before the uh, presidential election in 2012, the Supreme Court said that this particular aspect of Obamacare, the Medicaid expansion, could not be forced on the states. The original focus of the bill was to make this mandatory. And the Supreme Court ruled seven to two. So two of the liberals joined the five conservatives. Seven to two said this could not be forced upon the states. And so the states have a choice whether to expand Medicaid from the roughly about three quarters of the poverty line. Uh, The expansion now, I think, jumped up to about 125 percent of the poverty line. The states have the choice whether to take the federal money and expand Medicaid to cover those individuals. So is the conservative position to support Medicaid expansion or to oppose Medicaid expansion? Well, here's here's what I've seen. Liberals universally favor Medicaid expansion. Conservatives are more divided. So there are a lot of conservatives who've opposed it and a lot of red Republican states have opposed it. But a fair number of red states have also adopted it. So, oh, there's no question right, they have. Right. But here's my question to you. Those that have adopted it, have they been pursuing the the strongly conservative view or is that a pullback towards moderation, towards a more liberal view? I think it's, it's a pullback. It's a pullback. Right. Yes. Right. Listen, again, if someone wants to say I'm, I'm a moderate or I'm on the fence or on some issues I'm conservative, on some issues I'm liberal, right, that's – the libertarians can be classified as conservative economically and what we generally call liberal, I put it in quotes, um, uh, on social issues. So right. you can have people with a mix of views. It's just one cannot say that a libertarian is conservative across the board in a way that someone who is conservative on both social issues and on economics, right. economic issues is conservative, right? Right. And so – We've now discussed two issues on which John Cooper has has uh, tacked towards the liberal side. It doesn't make him an extreme Democrat, but he's tacked towards the liberal side. And Dan Sullivan has been on the more conservative side of both of those issues, perhaps amongst others. And now John Cooper is saying, I'm the steady conservative I call that politics. In other words, I call that puffery, not truth. Um, You know what? Let's take a break, and we will be back in a few minutes. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck. In the studio with me is Josh Silverstein. On the phone is Bob Ballinger. Bob will be with you in just a second. I forgot to do the standard disclaimer. That is that the views that I express, and perhaps more importantly, because Josh is a guest here, that Josh expresses are our views and our views alone and not necessarily those of the university. Bob, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing good. I apologize. It's taken me so long to get called in. Not at all. I hate that. Not at all. We seem to have an ability to fill the space with or without you. (laughs) Well, good. Yeah, there's a few people with a better gift of gab. Baby Dave uh, than what you have. Well, it's kind of you. (laughs) Uh, Bob, um, I had Bart Hester on the show the other day, and he spoke very highly of you uh, as one of only two Lawyers in the in the Senate. I was unaware that we only have two lawyers in the Senate. That well, go ahead. It, it, and we have a couple other people who have law degrees. I see that don't don't practice. And as far as Republicans go, 
there are two lawyers. Um, I'm only they, concerned they, about they, the Republicans, my friend. Are there, are, are there <laughs> others? You mean the people who vote against us? I'm not concerned about them. Yeah, you're not as worried about them. Yeah, right. there's a couple of them as well. That, I that see. Carry DF them. But even that, there's only two of them that actually practice. Isn't that funny? But the, yeah. are there any other Republicans with law degrees who don't practice? Yeah, well, so so Trent Garner doesn't have an active law practice. Okay. So really, I'm the only attorney with a law practice. So you, it's one. In, in it's Republic. one. Yeah, it's one. Yeah, that's right. I do think, uh, and tell me what your thoughts on this are. It's nice to be the only practicing attorney because that does allow you to say to your colleagues, hey, folks, come listen to me, come talk to me, because I can inform you as to some things. It's not that you're a bad senator, but you may know some things more about engineering if you're an engineer, but I'll know some more things about the practice of law, being a practicing lawyer. But I got to tell you, out of 35 um, uh, state senators uh, for the Republicans, I think we might be better off if we can get at least a few more practicing lawyers in the mix. I think we can actually create more powerful movement on things like, say, stand your ground when some folks come out and make these fantastic uh, fant- fantasy claims about what the law does. What, what do you think about that? No, I agree 100 percent. Now, you know, give me somebody who's right on policy and right. I'll take them over anybody else. But of course, but if you can give me an attorney who's right on policy, they're they're influential and they can speak the language. I mean, what we deal with as a legislature, as we deal with the code, right? You right. Know, and so yeah, somebody that, you know, part of their practice includes digging in and understanding and, and working the code, it is really valuable, not only for the practice of law as an individual, but for our state that we have people who kind of understand it's uh, even some of the negative side effects that could come from. But, yeah, it's a, it's a real value. Although, in the end, I would rather have a Senator Hester who is right on policy than than a you know a Republican or a Democrat who's an attorney who's not right on policy. A hundred percent. No, we're talking yeah. about an added feature rather than right, an either right. or. Uh, I had Bart yeah. on the show the other day because I think he's fantastic. He's wonderful on many issues, but let me focus in on one, and that's the Second Amendment. That he is so right. solid on the Second Amendment. He's also solid on free speech. You know, he yep. you ran. Kim Hammer's bill in committee very late in the session. We didn't have time to go back and sort of tweak it on free speech for government employees. And I mentioned that bill to Bart without any background. I didn't send him any advance notice of the bill Uh or anything like that. This guy rattled off five reasons why that bill is a good idea, or at least the notion behind the bill. Uh, And so that's a guy, as you say. I don't need him to be a lawyer, but if I've got some races that are open and I've got the choice between a solid conservative who's a lawyer and a solid conservative who's not a lawyer, well, I think the being a lawyer adds something to it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, one time there was there was more than enough lawyers to express that viewpoint right. in the legislature. It's not the case anymore. It's just there's a lot less of them. There's more farmers. There's, you know, more insurance guys. There's more, you know, real estate guys. There's more of a bunch of bankers than there are lawyers in the legislature now. I think, and I think that's the key point here. It's it's all about the balance. I don't want a legislature entirely made up of lawyers. I want a right. diversity of perspective along the conservative line, but with different backgrounds. But when right. you are the sole practicing attorney in the Senate which is the body between the two houses that drives, I'll say, most of the legislation, not all, 
but most, you've been in both houses, you know this. Uh, right. I think it's helpful if, as we strengthen the ranks of Republicans, and by that I mean conservative Republicans, uh, that we strengthen the numbers of lawyers. We can get to a point where you say, you know what, that's enough. But one, yeah. that's not enough. <laughs> Well, that's it, Rob. You know, yep. I've tried to drag you into running several times. So I know. When, you, when you're ready to pull the trigger, come on. Well, it, here's my problem. I live in the Heights, and it yeah. is so overwhelmingly leftist. But I did, here's what I w- will tell you. I called Doyle Webb this last term. As you know, Will Bond, who I like very much, but is a lefty, and I don't support any of his policies. Very nice guy. Um, yeah, right. Will, right. Will decided not to run again, and um, uh, Josh is here. Josh, who's replacing? Clark Tucker Thanks. is the leading candidate to replace him. Yeah, Clark is going to to run. You know, Clark is always looking for an, for a position to run for. He hasn't found a position he's not willing to run for. Hey, Clark, <laughs> it's it's a little bit of a joke, but and I like Clark by the way. Again, I don't agree with virtually anything he says on politics. So when when we found out Clark was going to run for that seat, I called up Doyle Webb and I said, Doyle, you find someone to run against him. If you don't, I'm running. I'm running. Yeah. And they got a solid candidate. Um, it's, I think it's is it Missy Irving's brother. Yeah, Missy's brother. Right. Yeah. right. So I think yeah. that's a solid uh, conservative to run against. But I'm, I'm what, what do they say in sports? I'm so bad with the sports metaphors. You know, I'm on the bench. I'm waiting. You know, if <laughs> I'll, I'll come running in if nobody else can do anything. So right, bench right, warmer, right. exactly. Well, all right. Well, we're, we're ready to do it. Or, or you can move. I mean, that wouldn't be the first time I know. somebody moved to run for office. I know. So. No, and that's it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Uh, yeah. Having having moved a few times, I hate it so much. It's such a chore, <laughs> but it might be the right thing in the future uh, for me and uh, our Kansans. But we'll put that off that discussion off for a future day. Bob, let's talk about stand your ground because I don't want people to forget this bill. I know you're going sure. to bring it up next session. First of all, I've described it already, but let's hear it from the horse's mouth. What's the point of the bill? How does it fit into the regime of laws that we have regarding Second Amendment, the right to defend yourself? This is a personal autonomy right, by the way. Uh, And a little bit of history, what happened the last session and why it's not hopefully not going to happen the next session, if you will. Sure. So so we have a uh, we have a pretty good self-defense law in the state of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Um, the one area that I would say that it's not good is that is that it it reads depending on where you're at. You know, if you're not if you're in your home, self defense law is great. You have no duty to retreat. If you're outside your home, then you have a job to retreat if you can do so in complete safety. Well, I'd say most people um, who are responsible gun owners will will you know will, will assess the situation if they have a retreat have the ability to retreat before it escalates. They'll try to do that. Like nobody wants to go in and have to have to use their firearm to defend themselves. But the problem is that if you do, if you are put in that position, now there's something that the prosecutor could look at and could say, no, no, we think that you did not, you did not, you know, retreat. You could have retreated in complete safety. And so therefore we're going to prosecute you for this, this act of taking another person's life or this act of of injuring another person. You know, the, the, the uh, defense from prosecution for self-defense, doesn't apply if you can retreat in what's called complete safety. And, and the real problem there is it just muddies the water. It creates some, uh, an area of confusion when really, you know, the, the timing is is, uh, is pivotal on whether it's life or death. You know, the, the shooting that happened down in Texas um, yesterday was just devastating. I can't imagine how bad that would be and how hard that would be on that church. But it, it wasn't a whole lot worse 
because there was a man who pulled his, his firearm and pulled the trigger and, and protected not his life, but the life of, life of other people. The question is, you know, and that, that took six seconds, and in six seconds he took, that guy took two people's lives. Well, what if that person had to pause, had to think about, had to consider whether or not he had the right self-defense in that situation, and, and, uh, and how many more lives would be taken? And so that, that's really what it's about, is that if you're in a situation where you're justified, and it has to be reasonable, right? You, you, it can't, I mean, it, you know, people try to use pie-in-the-sky arguments, silly arguments about, you know, somebody using uh, a stand your ground just in order to commit murder. You, you have to be reasonable in your use of self-defense. But if you're reasonable, then then at that point, there's not a situation where you have a duty to retreat. That, that's the idea yeah, of stand Bob, your ground. Is it, Bob, hold but, that thought. Can you stay with us a few minutes? We're going to take a quick break sure. and be right back after this. This is Robert Steinberg filling in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick Show. We have now in the studio, studio Chris Corbett, and on the line, Bob Ballinger. Bob, we're going to keep you a little bit longer if we can, uh, but no longer sure. than uh, 4.30 because uh, we have David Ray's going to uh, call in after you. As you know, David's running for uh, House uh, yeah. in I don't know what number the district is, but David's a great guy. As you know, David used to work for uh, the lieutenant governor. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Well, and he still works for a minute. And oh, David, he, is, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big fan of David Ray. Indeed. Well, I'm glad to hear it. As am I. I have uh, officially endorsed him, and notwithstanding that, I probably lose him a handful of votes. I'm not. I'm not taking <laughs> it away. Um, Bob, we were talking about stand your ground. I think I, I said to Josh off the air, Josh has left. I f- forgot to sort of sign him off. Uh, but Josh left. I said to him how impressed I was just now with how you explain that. And I do think that's one of the virtues of not only being a smart conservative legislator, which, as you said in the previous segment, is our goal, but also being a lawyer. I think being a lawyer helped you do what you just did on the radio. And, and I appreciate that. Here's my question for you. I was talking with Josh uh, before you came on, and Josh pointed out correctly, as he almost always does, other than on his political stances, right? Uh, Almost (laughs) always does, uh, said, you know, there were a bunch of law enforcement administrator types, not line officers, not the people out on the beat, not the people doing the work. There were these sort of higher ups, these guys who barely fit into their uniform shirts because, you know, they haven't hit the gym lately or walked the beat. All right. Maybe I'm getting a little bit over the top on that one. But you but you take my point. This is radio. You need to give a Bob, little bit Bob, of imagery. What's he trying to say what? about us fat boys what? here? Oh, wait. I'm the fat one. Yeah. <laughs> Bob lost a bunch of weight, in fact. And you're sort of His wife put him on a diet. Um, yeah. I'm still, I am still have to fall in the category of fat boy, though. I'm, I'm still there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, one day I'll get there. In any event. So we had these uh, not fat boy administrator types. Come testify against your bill with they had more brass on their outfits than than an old naval ship. It was remarkable. So tell me now, I said to Josh, I don't think the administrator types are actually conservative. I think their goals are bureaucratic. But but you tell me seriously, I'm open. I'm open to being corrected. I really mean that. So what are your thoughts on that? So, 
what you have are there are prosecutors who are um, very supportive of changes. They see the confusion uh, associated with the language now. In fact, most of them, even those guys that were there, said they wouldn't prosecute under that. In fact, one prosecutor, uh, you know, said he gave the scenario. He said, "I, you know, basically, I've never." use that in prosecution never never even consider the duty to, re- to retreat and so essentially what they're doing is there's laws on the books that they're ignoring and and that's essentially what we're wanting to do is get get the law on the books in conformity to, to what is actually happening out there it's not it is it's a terrible situation to have laws that are that are essentially unenforced because you know it just it creates confusion for the citizen citizenry but what i'd say is you know, the, those people, if you, the Prosecutor Association, the majority of the prosecutors in the state of Arkansas are Democrats. Sheriff's Association, the Is majority that right? of the sheriffs. Wait, say that yeah. one more time, please. Say that one the, more time. The majority, the majority of who are Democrats? Of the prosecutors in the state of Arkansas are Democrats. I did not know now that. They're, now, their positions are now nonpartisan. Uh, yeah, okay. But, yeah, yeah. But, and but a before, banana. But, by the way, Bob, if you call a banana an apple, you know what it is? A banana. Yeah, that's okay. right. And so— but but a few short years ago, it wasn't nonpartisan, and they were they all ran as Democrats. So majority of the of the prosecutors are Democrats. A majority of the sheriffs that's still a partisan office. Majority of the sheriffs in the state of Arkansas are Democrats. I did it's not, not know that. Not surprising that they would be be against. Now, that doesn't mean. I mean, some of those sheriffs are good people. Some of those oh. sheriffs otherwise support. Hey, Joyce Elliott is good but, people. I mean that sincerely. Yeah, by the way, right. Joyce Elliott exactly. is good, but she's going to vote against this because she's a lefty. So, yeah, she's really wrong on policy. And, that's right. And so that's that's the thing is what what you see is is these you know law enforcement agencies um, still the uh, same thing with police chiefs associations. I mean, you, across the board, they tend to still still lean a little left. A lot of really great people, a lot of people who some of them otherwise may be very supportive of Second Amendment rights, but they have have they have basically you know drived a nail saying they're not going to support a stand your ground. Now, right in the end. We actually did put together a version that was not going to be opposed by the, the Prosecutor Association. Um, some prosecutors in Northwest Arkansas helped us put it together, hmm. and, it, and, and it was not going to be opposed by the Prosecutor Association. But we still couldn't get um, Senator Cooper to, to support it, so it didn't make it out of committee. Do you have a sense as to why John Cooper opposed it? I, I mean, I really got along great with Senator Cooper, and, and we we worked together on the legislation and been supportive of, you know, I think, honestly, you know, what he will tell you is that he heard from people in his district, and so he couldn't support it. Well, there's an old Democrat prosecutor there that, that was very strongly opposed to, to stand your ground. My guess is it was him. And frankly, there's a lot of people who are part of the Moms Demand Action Group that were, were around the Capitol a lot. They, they oh, he met with them a lot. I, I, saw, I saw him meeting with them a lot, Yeah. Well, so so and and so I think that I mean literally I think it was a response to hearing people from his district. Now, the, the truth is the average citizen and most of the Republicans in his district probably weren't weren't engaged on this issue. But I would say I mean just like most people who were involved in this issue, probably heard more from from activists than they heard from uh, from the average citizen. But that doesn't mean that the average citizen doesn't want the rights protected anyway. Of course, right. So that's always the difficulty, and and you expressed it. As usual, quite well, but I want to emphasize this point just because a state senator or state rep or any any elected official hears from one vocal group, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is representative of even a, a, a plurality, no less a majority of the population in that district, in that state, in that country. The loudest right. doesn't yeah. mean the most. Those are two different things. 
Right. And yeah, so, exactly right. So we have a duty to listen, but we also have a duty to to try to balance that with what what we know to be right and true, and and frankly, what we know to be the the views of the citizens in our in our district, even if we're not hearing from them. Exactly right. Of course, that's why you're elected to sort of use your best judgment. You're not elected to take a poll every three months and determine what the majority of your district says. You're elected for your term to use your judgment. And Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. And every uh, – I vote, for obviously, for politicians all the time, and I have no doubt on, on any – on some issue, even those people that I support, they're going to vote a way I wouldn't vote. So be it. Right. Because yeah, you can't that, get – go ahead. Yeah, until you decide to go ahead and run for office, you're probably not going to find anybody that you support 100 percent of the time. You know, one of the things that's really liberty, liberating for me is I try to be an open book. I, I try to tell people where I stand. And, and honestly, most of everything that I that I vote comes from a liberty-minded perspective, from a classical liberal perspective. And so that that gives people, if, the, if that's what they want, then they can vote for me and send me to off, into office. And then I will try to vote consistent with that, you know, every time. And then, and you know, if that's not what they want, then they don't have to vote for me. I still try to list in my constituents, especially on some, you know, there's some things like handling some legislation for Holiday Island to help them with their improvement district, right? Well, that that kind of stuff is so specific, it doesn't necessarily fall into the category of, uh, you know, but so obviously we're listening to our constituents and how legislation affects them. Of course. But in the end, on these big issues, you know, they know what they're getting. I'm I'm never going to make anybody from Moms of Man ha- action happy with me. It's just never going to happen because – I have a liberty-minded perspective that comes to firearms as well. And so, you know, I'm not going to vote for any new restrictions on on Second Amendment, period. Right. And you you mentioned earlier, and I want to emphasize this point because it's a very nuanced point, a very sophisticated point. You said that you are a classical liberal, just to be clear. In modern-day vernacular, that means a conservative. Classic, you said, well, classical liberal? How is it liberal? No, it's not liberal. It's modern yeah. liberal is progressive classic liberal is freedom and rights and what generally is considered conservative these days. Yeah, that's right. The, the problem is conservative means so much now that that's right. maybe maybe more than a classical liberal. So, you know, I'm not a, not really a populist, um, you know, although many things I, I my views are focused on what what individual people want and how it affects them. But I, I'm not a nationalist. I, I'm a patriot, but not a nationalist. The really best way is a Jeffersonian, Madisonian class. Describe myself. Absolutely. Oh, I I, I couldn't uh, uh, disagree even a, even the slightest with that. But it, I, I like that, and I just want to emphasize for Dave's listeners that's a that's a very sophisticated description and an apt description. And the the true I'm going to use conservative for the moment, but in this context, right? The true conservative right. view that we are we both share is freedom less right. intervention by the government and because when we look at government and we look at unelected bureaucrats telling us what's good for us and what's not good for us we start to get more than a bit concerned and, right exactly and, and you know I, I mentioned earlier and I, I, I on the air that I went to the gun show here in Little Rock and I was disturbed that it's public property it's government property. That means it belongs to the citizens. It's rented out. Sure enough, fair enough, whatever. And then the private group says no guns allowed. 
even though if you go over to the local university, which is public property, and you have an enhanced carry license, you can carry your gun there. It strikes me that private businesses shouldn't be changing the rights of Arkansans on public property. I'm not asking for you for your opinion on this legal issue right now, although you're free to to expound. But what I want to point out here and want you to comment on is this notion that we're always looking to ensure the rights of Arkansans, and in this regard, those that relate to personal self-defense as reflected in the Second Amendment, as reflected in the state version of the Second Amendment, which happens to be a different number amendment, but we still call it second out of convenience, uh, that your goal for as long as I've known you, has been to make sure that that right is not infringed, notwithstanding the constant effort by those on the left to do so. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, there is a there is a bit of a balance when it comes to property rights. Like, I'd never want the state to go in and tell a person that they had no choice but to allow guns on their private property. Absolutely. This is, a, this is an interesting situation because what you have is a – is a government um, building, government property exactly. that they wouldn't be allowed to otherwise prohibit guns. And then yet when you lease it out, they're able to do that. It, right. To me, especially when you're talking about a gun show, right. that just seems silly. Like, mm-hmm. you know, now, you know, it's not the government's job to go in and try to make stupid people not do stupid things, right? There, there's some, Agreed. some area where, so so maybe that's, you know, maybe they should still have that their ability. Maybe someone can explain why some person renting it. I'm like, you know, if you're renting that facility and you're doing a big wedding or you're doing a big prom, you know, if these private individuals want to want to rent this to and, and prohibit firearms, I guess I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's but interesting. Really, really that's, stupid when we're talking about a uh, gun show. Right. And so that you've, you know, as always, you add a level of sophistication to my simplicity. And so what you've described there is what happens if a private individual rents a public facility for a private event, meaning a wedding. Right. You can't just walk in and pay a ticket or just walk in and, and, and go in. But at a gun show, it's open to the public. And that's so now. Right. We have three stages. We have pure public. We have public entrance run by a private entity. And then you've got private event on public land only for private people. So we're going to have to talk more about this, Bob, because I think there's uh, an opening for some future legislation. Obviously, I'm not I don't hold office. I just blow a lot of hot air into a microphone (laughs) and anywhere else that I can do so. But we have a lot of bills running around, though, for a guy who's just a citizen. Amen, brother. And I'm going to continue. And so we'll talk in the future about whether this might be a future tweak to the enhanced carry licensing scheme so as to designate those uh, areas on public property in which public events are held, but run by private entities, whether the, the public law should apply. I think yeah. it should. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, what we're doing is we're allowing, and frankly, I think that'll help because what you have some cities that are doing, doing what is really a city event, right? but they're, they're officially licensing it out or leasing it out to some other private entity. I think more than anything for the sole purpose to be able to limit the carrying of firearms. That's so, right. So, so I, I think that, I think that could be a, could be a way to uh, to avoid that is that if they're going to do something that's open to the public and it's on this public property, the part of the lease agreement should be that it would be, you know, that individuals who are licensed to carry out to be able to carry in those places. Indeed. Indeed. Bob, it's yeah. so always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we are going to continue to watch the great efforts that you make. 
uh, in the legislature and when you run for uh, attorney general, I don't know if you've announced it, but I'm going to announce it for you <laughs> as well as my support, therefore. And then again, now you've got to make up the two votes that you've lost because you've gotten my support. But that's okay. Uh, even with that weight around your neck, I'm confident that you're going to win that office. Uh, you're, you're a great American. You're a great Arkansan. Keep up the great work. We will talk with you again in the near future. Thank you, Rob. You're too kind. Talk to you later. This is Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday afternoon after having gone to the Little Rock Gun Show this weekend. We just talked with Bob Ballinger about that in the studio. Chris Corbett, lawyer, practicing lawyer. Yes. Professional engineer. That's right. Master plumber. Master plumber. And what was the fourth one? Surveyor, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm only a surveyor in training. Surveyor right? in training, exactly. Yeah, and a patent attorney. And a, well, pat, Which is yeah. part of being an attorney, yeah. Right. Although that's rather rare. A patent attorney is an attorney licensed to appear before the Patent and Trademark Office, That's and you right. need a science degree and to pass a special exam for that. <clears throat> you have any idea how many patent attorneys there are in the whole state of Arkansas? There's uh, 50. No! Yeah. One, you're one of 50? One of 50, and then I think uh, there's only about, actually about 10 practicing. So you're one then, of 10? Yeah, and then there's... Wow. Um, you're in the another, top 10? No, twenty five. By I'm in the top ten, no matter what. I need to get me a, an award. Huh? Exactly. <clears throat> top ten patent practicing these, patent attorneys. Yeah, I see these bogus awards to right. attorneys. What do you mean? How's the, the best litigator? What What is that? Just want to know. You know, Chris, you heard uh, Bob Ballinger, who's a practicing attorney and, of course, state senator, say just a moment ago something that I've been suggesting for some time now, and others, I'm not the first to this ground by any means, that... Given that he's the only practicing attorney in the Arkansas Senate, we need more practicing attorneys. We don't need all 35 senators to be practicing attorneys. Then you get too much conformity, right? Or too much argument. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But there's really a competitive advantage for any district at this point that elects a, a practicing attorney given... That there's only one practicing attorney in the legislature. You heard Bart Hester, who, who is wonderful, a strong conservative, yes. uh, uh, extremely bright mind and sophisticated, say he'll go, he'll run over to Bob Ballinger from time to time to ask him some questions about legislation, knowing that Bob is a practicing attorney. And so if you, if if another attorney, practicing attorney, is in that body. He's going to have the ear of a lot of legislators in just advising them on questions that they may have, which will give him an op- him or her an opportunity to say, by the way, I've got this bill. Right. So the people of that district will get more done by electing a practicing attorney. Without a doubt. I would think so. And then and just if you take a, if you think of, think about it, 35 people in the Senate. Right. Um, if there's only one practicing attorney in there, he's actually making a living interpreting some of these laws in court, right. making argue, arguments about the statute, a law that he's passed, is such an advantage. Really, and you need more minds like that. Not, like, not that saying a non-lawyer can't read or can't pass a law or legislate a rule, but that person is simply not, have been, has not been required to interpret that or make an argument about what it actually means, which is a big difference. And so I know you haven't decided yet, Chris, <laughs> but Chris Corbett, how is this not yet another good reason that you need to represent the people of 
Conway, what's it? I, oh, I apologize. I'm so bit. What's the county? Faulkner, Faulkner County, County, thank right. you. Uh, the people of Conway and Faulkner County in the Arkansas Senate, not this coming term, because you haven't registered anything, right. but to run for Jason Rapert's what will be open seat when he runs for lieutenant governor in the following term. How is this not how is this not dragging you into this race right now? You make a great argument, Rob. I'm leaning hard to run it. Okay, good. And 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 for several reasons. Yep. One, we need more attorneys in the legislature. Right. And and I think that it if I did run, it'd be a big advantage yeah. to the to the citizens of Conway, Faulkner County, and someone that actually practices law and interprets statutes. I've I've struggled sometime in court and going, what in the world does this mean? What does this statute mean? I can't argue it either way. So, um, yeah, we need more lawyers in, in the legislature. It's, it's a big advantage. It has to be. And as we sort of gear up, as we increase that number, I don't want all of them to be lawyers. No. But one is not enough. As we gear up, you really will have a competitive advantage in getting stuff done in the legislature. So Chris Corbett for Senate. That's my campaign <laughs> after these messages. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave Ellswick on this Monday afternoon in the studio. Attorney Chris Corbett, hopefully in the future, State Senator Chris Corbett. That's right. And on the on the phone, someone who's running now for office, David Ray. David, how are you? Rob, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey, David, uh, before we get into it and talk some politics... Uh, remind Dave's audience where you are, where you're running for office. Uh, of course, my favorite spot in your district is the shooting range in Mayflower. That's a fantastic facility, state facility. But, of course, your district is broader than just that shooting range. Uh, and so t- tell us where you're running uh, and how the race is going and also your background. Of course, most people know that you are the chief of staff for Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin, hopefully uh, soon to be future governor. Uh, but tell us what you do, what you have done and where you're running for office. Yeah, thanks, Rob. And I'm a big fan of the gun range, too. I go there pretty often myself. Um, so I'm running for House Arkansas House District 40. District 40 has been represented for the last eight years by uh, Doug House, who's also a Republican. Um, Representative House is retiring, and so I'm running for that open seat. Uh, There's no Democrat that filed, but I do have a Republican primary. And so since there's not a Democrat running, there's only an independent candidate running in the general election. Whoever wins the Republican primary in District 40 is more than likely going to be the next state representative. And District 40 covers a lot of territory. It's uh, in terms of land area. You know, it's about half Pulaski County, half Faulkner County. Um, in the in the Pulaski County portion, it's the northern part of the county. Um, you know, mostly rural, unincorporated areas, but a little bit of Jacksonville, a little bit of um, uh, Sherwood, a little bit of Maumelle. And uh, up in Faulkner County, it includes all of Mayflower, the southern rural portions of the county, and then it goes um, up in between Conway and Bologna, so all of Highway 64, that area in there, and then it goes north of that area as well. Um, so that is District 40. You know, my background, like you asked about, Rob, you know, I've dedicated um, my entire professional career to helping advance our shared conservative values and policies and principles um, for the last three and a half or the last three years almost I've been uh, the chief of staff to our lieutenant governor Tim Griffin 
and have worked hand in hand with him um, to lower our taxes, to control state spending. Um, we've, in our office alone, we've reduced our budget by 16 percent. Um, we've re- reduced the number of employees, state employees in that office. At, each, at the end of each fiscal year, we return tens of thousands, uh, sometimes almost as much as $100,000 each year um, to the state treasury because our attitude is if it's not going to measurably improve the lives of our Kansans, we don't spend it. And um, you know, before that, um, I ran the uh, state chapter, Arkansas State Chapter of Americans for Prosperity for several years. Um, for folks that are not familiar with that group, it's dedicated to expanding economic freedom and individual liberty. Uh, we were very successful in terms of fighting against tax increases, whether they were sales tax increases or property tax increases, both at the state and local level. We helped defeat tax increases. Um, we also passed important conservative reforms like the repeal of Arkansas's prevailing wage law, which was a burdensome government regulation that artificially drove up the cost of state construction projects. By repealing that, we've been able to save taxpayers literally millions of dollars across the state. Um, and I led. I was proud to lead that organization for several years. I've also been a senior advisor to um, Senator Tom Cotton, and I'm very proud to have his endorsement in my race, also endorsed by Lieutenant Governor Griffin and um, five of the JPs in Faulkner County, including including every JP that lives in this district has endorsed me. And um, so I'm very proud of that as well. You know, David, you, of course, have my endorsement. And now you're going to have to make up two votes for the two that you lost by having my endorsement. So, well, <laughs> you know, uh, there's only so much I can do for you. Uh, but in all seriousness, I've known well, you. Hey, for... if you're, if you're winning the if you're winning the Professor Steinbach primary, then um, you're in good shape as far as I'm concerned. Well, I it appreciate at least that. Means you're, it at least means you're right on the issues. That's right. And, um, you know. You you did you asked how the campaign was going. Um, I didn't really answer. I didn't really get to that. But yeah, go ahead. The campaign is going is going great. I've been out meeting voters in in all different corners of the district, speaking to every community group that will that will let me come speak to them. And um, things things are going really well. I've been I've been advertising. Uh, I've got my ads up on digital platforms, and folks have been seeing those and. Um, so the feedback has been great. Let me ask you a little inside baseball, if I may. What is the sort of the different avenues of advertising, be it uh, billboards, be it digital, be it radio, be it uh, television? Do you have a uh, preference? Uh, you know, what is one better for versus another? Well, um, you know, I, I would say, Rob, it, it really depends on what the race is I see. and what area, what area you're trying to reach. So obviously a primary race is a little bit different from a general election. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a very localized race is different from a statewide race. I, see. Uh, I will tell you the most targeted platforms are digital and mail. You know, obviously you can mail something to somebody and it'll go straight to their mailbox. Whereas if you run a television ad, you know, it's going to be on, a set number of channels and you don't know if that person's uh, if the, if, if the person you're trying to reach is watching that channel or not. Um, But, you know, the benefit of broadcast mediums like radio and television is you can, uh, again, broadcast is think of it more as like a shotgun blast instead of a a pinpoint 
strike, um, you know, a rifle shot, uh, to stick with that analogy. Sure. So that's, that's kind of the difference in a, in a, in a localized race like mine with a primary, um, where you're, you're really targeting Republican primary voters, you know, um, talking to folks like we're doing now on conservative talk radio is a mm-hmm. good idea, mailing people, um, you know, reaching them over digital platforms, all of that, all of those are a good idea. And of course, uh, signs like you mentioned are sort of a age old campaign classic that helps raise people's name ID. So doing all of that. Interesting. interesting. No, I think it's interesting to know. I think Dave's listeners uh, sort of uh, like to understand the process as well as the outcome. Right. And the, it's just how, how do you do it? Right. And we're democratizing elections in part by discussing the process. There's nothing to hide here. Your your goal is to get your message out and that you are the best candidate for your district. I know you are, but you've got to communicate that to the voters. And that's a process. You know, sometimes, you know, when I ask somebody for a contribution or something, they'll say, man, I wish politics, you didn't have to raise money in politics. And I say, yeah, well, I wish the post office would deliver my mail for free. But Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, sign, signs are effective, David. I saw your sign on the way to the gun range this weekend in Mayflower. Oh, great, it's right there on the great. corner. I saw it. A nice gun range out there, too. It is. It is. I love it. And, um, you know, great facility out there. You can, you know, they got a rifle range, a pistol range. They've got uh, uh, trap trap throwers, yes. um, skeet, skeet towers. Um, they've got all kinds of different stuff. I've got to get out there again. I. I went, uh, I'm the faculty advisor at the Bowen School of Law uh, for the Second Amendment Society, uh, started by a student, uh, Hannah Webb Howard, who's an often guest on Dave's show, in fact. Uh, that's how I met her before she was my student. I met her on Dave's show um, a couple few years ago. I don't recall exactly when. In any event, uh, we took a, a group out there, including a group of folks who've never shot guns before, and we said, listen. You don't have to be whatever is pro-gun or anti-gun. I put it all in quotes because I'm not sure I know exactly what all that means. Uh, But if you want to see what a shooting, a gun exists, whether or not you like it and you might like it or you might think they're they're somehow embodiment of evil. They still exist and you might actually want to handle one and see what it's about. Uh, And that might not change your mind or it might. But and we had a terrific response. Students, like I say, who never handle guns to who. Former military folks who obviously handle guns. And as you say, David, it's a fantastic facility out there. You go out there, it's three bucks. Uh, and I've shot their rifle, I've shot their handgun. I haven't yet done shotgun. And I'm still not, I still, I need you and Chris to explain to me the difference between what is it, skeet? And what's the other one called? Trap. Yeah. Trap and skeet. I don't know. <laughs> it's all these things flying up in the air that you take a shotgun to. What's the difference? It's all training to shoot birds in the face. Right. Yeah, I know. You like to kill them. I'm not killing the birds, <laughs> wanted, just the clay pigeons. David, he didn't, want, he didn't want to shoot a duck in the face. I'm not shooting a duck in the face, David. I ain't going to do it. I'm telling you that right now. I'll eat it. If you want to serve it up, I'll well, eat it. Hey. Yep. Hey, once we get past the primary and I get my Saturdays back, Rob, we'll, yep. we'll go out there and do some shooting. We will do it. We will do it. Uh, David, um, you know what? Let's take a quick break. We're going to have you back for one more segment if you've got the time, and I want to talk some policy. Is that okay? Let's do it. Great. I see. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday afternoon in the studio, Chris Corbett, and on the radio, David Ray, who's running for state rep over there in the 
I'll say the Mayflower area, David, you can describe it more. I'm awful with geography. Uh, in any event, David, let's talk some policy issues. I had Bob Ballinger on the show earlier. I know you were uh, cracking some leather, uh, shaking hands uh, up there in your district, so you likely didn't hear it. But we were talking about, of course, Bob's then uh, so far unsuccessful stand your ground law. I don't want to say it that way because it sounds like he didn't do everything he could. He, he, he did. But last minute, John Cooper torpedoed the bill. Now, we're going to get it passed. I'm ultimate, uh, I'm completely confident of that fact in the next legislature. But as you know, stand your ground is quite a simple concept. That is, if you are uh, uh, being attacked with deadly force, you can use deadly physical force without having to evaluate whether you can run away, essentially. So I think I know your perspective on this, but I want to use that as a jumping off point for you to comment on that. And then more broadly, to talk about gun rights. Yeah, absolutely. I'm strongly supportive of of Arkansas passing a stand your ground law. And look, I'll make this broader point that that law failing in the last legislative session, as well as it taking multiple chance, multiple uh, tries to pass a anti-sanctuary city law, as well as the numerous tax increases that went through in the last session really pushed me over the edge uh, and, and, and motivated me to jump in and offer myself up as a candidate for the state legislature because, you know, with 76 out of 100 Republicans in the state house, I feel like, you know, we're, we're doing some good things and we're moving in the right direction in a lot of areas, but it's like we're moving in the right direction, you know, at like a 15 or 20 mile an hour pace. And we really need to be moving uh, much more in a bold direction, especially because so many other states, um, are enacting, you know, strong conservative policies. And we're getting left in the dust in a lot of respects, especially as it relates to taxes and regulatory reform, spending restraint, and things like that. Um, to go back to the Second Amendment, you know, look, I'm a, a strong supporter of our Second Amendment rights. I'm a life member of the NRA. I'm a member of Gun Owners of America. Uh, I do support a uh, stand-your-ground law. Um, I do support constitutional carry i think that um you know these i have grave concerns over the so-called red flag laws that so many people are pushing um i think there's very serious constitutional concerns not just with second amendment but with fourth amendment and fifth amendment rights as well um and so you know our founders were were very wise to put a second amendment and our bill of rights. It's the, it is the, 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 the amendment that protects all of our other rights. And so, um, you know, I will be a, a solid pro second amendment vote if I'm elected to the legislature. Well, that's not that I had any doubt, but it's still wonderful to hear that notion repeated as many times as we can. You, you highlight an important fact and that is 76 Republicans in the in the house is it and yet the vote doesn't reflect that and i like your analogy we're moving at 15 miles an hour so we're moving forward it's better than backwards but with such an overwhelmingly republican but unfortunately not necessarily overwhelmingly conservative legislature we need some more true conservatives in there i thought yeah and i'll give you i'll give you i'll give you just i'll give you just one example of that rob you know 
in this legislative session, um, this past legislative session, there was a great thing happened. We cut income taxes by $100 million, which is a great thing to do. I mean, income taxes disincentivize labor and work and productivity, all things that we want more of. Um, our neighbors to the, to the west and the east in Texas and Tennessee have zero income tax. So we need to work towards that goal. And reducing income taxes by $100 million was a great step. But then we go in and we increase taxes for all manner of other things, uh, whether it's, you know, gasoline, cell phones, all kind, you know, tobacco, all kinds of stuff. And a lot of times I feel like it's one step forward, two steps back in, in some regard. And so, you know, I just want to be a, a voice and a leader for limited government policies to use my experience uh, and, and background to help move the ball forward and, and win conservative victories for limited government. David, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know if I didn't, I would tell you. I saw uh, recently when Dan, Dan Sullivan was in here, you know Dan is running for state senate, of course, in a primary challenge, as is the case in many jurisdictions like yours that you mentioned earlier. And uh, I'm hopeful and fairly confident that Dan will win, but we got to keep working towards that goal. But I mentioned that because Dan uh, showed me an article where the state government gave essentially $3 million to an opera house up there in Northwest Arkansas out of the so-called Rainy Day Fund, which of course is just a rename of the GIF, whatever that stood for, uh, graft, I think. But in any event, um, uh, and... Here's the thing, David, you guys in the uh, lieutenant governor's office had a leftover and you returned that money. Uh, I don't know what a rainy day fund is, frankly, because it strikes me if the government has too much money, they should give the money back to the owners of the money. They should give it back to the people. And so I don't like when government A, collects too much money in taxes and then B, hoards it in some uh, make-believe fund rather than returning it to the people. Uh, and I equally or relate, yeah. go ahead, you, you comment on that. Uh, if well, you I'll, give you, I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that, Rob. Yeah. You know, the state should have an emergency, a rainy day fund or an emergency fund, whatever you want to call it. Right. You know, just like your, just like your household would, um, it would have a, a money set aside for an emergency. And, and having that is good. It's good for our state's bond rating. It's good if we have a recession, economic downturn, um, that to have a buffer there, just a little something between, you know, the revenue that's coming in and, 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 and the asphalt on the road if, if bad things happen. Uh, that being said, you know, just like you wouldn't raid your, uh, just like you wouldn't raid your household's emergency fund to go buy, you know, a case of beer on Friday night, the state shouldn't raid our emergency fund for things that are not true emergencies. Um, so I, I feel pretty strongly about that. Um, you know, the, the second thing I'll say on that is we really ought to, the state of Indiana, Lieutenant Governor Griffin and I recently made a trip to Indiana and we met with former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, who's now the president of Purdue University. And for folks who are not familiar with him, uh, you ought to look into him because he was a extremely successful governor he's been president of purdue university for i think nine years now and they haven't increased tuition a single year he's been there which is remarkable because they just continually find efficiencies and savings 
But one of the things that he told us about was that when he was governor, Indiana passed what they called an automatic taxpayer refund, where if revenues come in over a set amount, um, that money just automatically generates a, a refund back to taxpayers. And I think that's something we ought to take a look at and study in Arkansas and see if we can make that work here. Because, look, ultimately, the money belongs to the people and if and to the to the hardworking taxpayers who earned it. And if we're if the state is taking in far and above what it needs to operate, we need to, to look at turning that back to the taxpayers because clearly taxes are too high if that's the case. Amen, brother. And, you know, I do appreciate that correction uh, of me. That is, you're right. We should have some money in some sort of fund. And my dispute is, as you aptly point out, to be clear, uh, is not that we keep some money in some fund, be it rainy day, or I like your terminology better, emergency, because when you term it correctly, then it makes it harder to abuse it. Uh, And by no definition... In my world, uh, is it an emergency to give $3 million to an opera house uh, so that the Georgetown wine-swirling elitists can go listen to their uh, old-fashioned fancy music uh, while people who pay for those things come home at night and take a shower because they work during the day for a living instead of the other way around? Listen, I am in a pretty white-collar job, meaning I don't come home uh, sweaty and covered in dirt. But I've done those jobs, and they ain't easy. Uh, Chris, who's uh, in in the studio, and we're going to talk with him uh, after the break, after we let you go, David, has also uh, done those jobs. And we both know one of the reasons we've pursued our careers in law is, frankly, those jobs are hard. Our job ain't easy, but those jobs are hard. And another hard job is being a state legislator, representing your district and pursuing conservative values. But we know, David, that you are going to be a success at it because A, you're committed, B, you're intelligent, and C, you have the energy to get it done. And that's one of the keys here. We need people who aren't asleep. We need people who aren't uh, sort of born with a silver spoon in their mouth, retired at 50. We need active, energetic, intelligent candidates. You are one of them. You're going to be in the legislature in the next session. We wish you good luck and Godspeed in that effort. Thank you, David. Hey, Rob, thank you so much. And if folks want to uh, follow my campaign, Check me out on Facebook at Ray for Arkansas. That's R-A-Y-F-O-R, Arkansas. And then um, my website is just simply RayForArkansas.com. All spelled out, no numbers. We're going to do it, David. Uh, Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.